Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to the Body Protest Podcast a new intersectional body image podcast that takes a deep dive into our often complicated, occasionally treacherous relationships with our bodies. We want to figure out how we can all feel more at home in our bodies and what it will take to create a world that fosters positive body image. I'm Honey Ross. And I'm Nadia Craddock. In each episode, we'll be combining storytelling with science to discuss body image, so how we feel about how we look in relation to our weight, shape, race, skin colour, physical ability, sexuality, mental health, and whatever else comes up. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. We are so excited about today's guest. She's an icon in the world of feminism and body image, and we are so thrilled that she said yes and agreed to speak with us. Yes, we had the pleasure of speaking with Susie Allback, psychoanalyst, writer, activist and broadcaster. Susie's written numerous books and columns on how we relate to food and our bodies. One of her best-known books... Fat is a Feminist Issue was first published in 1978, and since then she has continued writing about the topic, with books like Hunger Strike, uh, On Eating and Bodies. So, Honey and I went to her house in North London, which is this incredible, like, oasis of bookline walls and copious natural light. It was delightful. (laughs) Um... We were both a bit nervous, wouldn't you say, Arnie? I mean, yes, I, we were terrified, absolutely yeah. terrified. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we got there a bit late too. I know, we, we, everything, everything went a, everything a bit Everything went a little bit awry that day. Before we got there, but she was lovely. Um, she's very direct in how she speaks, which yeah. I really appreciated. She's like, um, she takes no shit, you can tell, like, yeah. I, I, which I really liked about yeah. her. Um, she was very much despairing about our culture today. Uh, she literally said she couldn't do body image work full time like, because it was too depressing, which, I mean, I think we can all relate to. Yeah, I thought that, I thought that was interesting. I was kind of surprised she said that, yeah, to be honest. Yeah, because I feel like, I mean, maybe we're silly for being optimistic, but I genuinely feel like we can change things. Yeah. And she's very much like, nope, probably not. No, and it's only like, going to get worse. <laughs> and we're like, okay, Susie, great. <laughs> uh, I guess if we haven't read Fat is a Feminist Issue... The basic thesis is that fat is a symptom for underlying distress and compulsive eating as a coping mechanism for women living in like an impressive patriarchal culture. Um, and so I, th- I don't know, I think that can certainly be true for some people, but I don't think it's a universal experience. And I think it's, it's interesting I, where I respect Susie a lot. I don't necessarily agree with everything she has to say. And I think we kind of need to think about fat phobia being a feminist issue also when you think about how weight stigma interacts with with gender and the experience of weight stigma for for women i feel like when i think of susie i'm like you're a proper trailblazer who did this incredible work so essentially you know she walked so we could run you know what i mean but it's not you know the, the book is definitely dated in some ways and i think i don't 
entirely agree with all of the ideologies in it but I think she's incredible and I'm so grateful for the work she's done yeah so we had a really really nice conversation about her work and about her career I enjoyed speaking to her or hearing about um her early career in in New York yeah yeah um a word of warning for this episode the sound quality might be slightly off because we had an absolute nightmare that our sound recorder died so we had to record it on a phone a very high quality phone i will say but a phone nonetheless so if you notice a change in the audio we are very sorry and um i would say it won't happen again but it it, it's (laughs) happened with another episode um but yeah we hope you enjoy Self-love is true love. Honour the most important relationship in your life, yourself. Our sponsor, Womanizer, believes that every person has the right to pleasure and self-love, regardless of age, sexuality, size and colour. A wonderful way to learn to appreciate your body is through self-pleasure. Masturbation is a truly joyful way to connect with your body and learn to feel comfortable in your skin. Everyone should feel able to feel comfortable in their body and explore their own sexual needs and desires. In this house, we see masturbation as the purest form of self-love. Unlike other vibrators, Womanizer products stimulate with soft pressure waves. It is stimulation without touch, meaning there is no chance of overstimulation or loss of sensitivity. Get yourself your very own Womanizer at womanizer.com UK so you can light a candle, run a bath and have a mind-blowing night of sexy self-care. Susie, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. It's a huge honour to have you on. I'm such a big fan. I know, we are proper fangirls, so (laughs) it's a real honour to meet (laughs) you. No, it's a pleasure for me. It's a delight. Great, thank you. I wonder... I mean, it's a tragedy too, right? Because I don't want to be looking at women of your age and knowing the troubles you're going through. But... There it is. I know. It must be annoying knowing that we're all still having the same conversations that you've been Correct. having for a very long time. For decades. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if, uh, if you could introduce yourself for our listeners. I wrote a book a long time ago about women and body image and compulsive eating and with the idea of how you might get out of the mess through what would now be called intuitive eating, i.e. eating yeah. when you're hungry, stopping when you're full, understanding why you eat when you're not hungry. Um, and I thought that would be it, and 42 years later, it seems to me the problem is much, much bigger, and I've written continuing books on it, on the same topic, from hunger strike to on eating to bodies, which I have just revised 10 years after it first came out. So um, despite being a regular psychotherapist, the problem is now at such public health emergency levels, that it's really eating into both our childhoods and women's and increasingly men's lives. Mm. What drew you to this area? Well, I think I just had an ordinary eating problem but I mean now mm. it wouldn't even be considered an eating problem it wouldn't it would it would be it would be considered such a fantastic way to eat you know my mother dieted so I dieted right and when you diet you create the conditions for binging and sure that was what I did and, that's and like I, so... I was just writing about that and how crazy it was mm. and what it would be like to risk actually knowing what your body wanted and discovering the foods you like without shoulds yeah and how they sat with you and what they did to you emotionally and, and physiologically and psychologically. And 
that's how it came about. And I was training to be a therapist at the same time. Yeah, it's such an extraordinary phrase, isn't it? An ordinary eating problem that we kind of then... Um, yeah, it is so normalised. Yeah. I mean, it's not even... Uh, I think to myself, if I look at young women today, that wouldn't even be considered an eating problem because right. they're on yeah. over the toilet bowls or they're restricting all week and eating at the weekends yeah. or yeah. they're checking in with themselves every 15 minutes. So it's... What I'm talking about was something so trivial and minor, mm. and yet I thought it was an outrage, and I thought it was worth politicising the whole thing and thinking about the fact that women were doing this and divorcing themselves from their bodies, which were perceived of as by themselves as critical and wrong and mm -hmm. objects and things that needed to be tamed and to be watchful about. So, but it was so minor. So I'm really curious, in the 70s, because I think now everyone is talking about body image, I think yeah. there's, like, there's a lot of conversation mm. around it. I wonder, when you published Fat is a Feminist Issue, what was the conversation and what was the reaction to the book at the time? It was absolutely phenomenal. And I made a decision to, it was in the days of magazines, to have mm. it serialised into magazines. I don't even think they exist because they were predominantly working class, women and women's own, mm -hmm. uh, rather than let's say the guardian because, yeah right. although of course it was picked up by the guardian and the observer but it was my thrust was ordinary women are having are you having this difficulty and it was just phenomenal i mean the book was out of print within the week it was wow. just that's amazing yeah. you know i had I, I i don't have them anymore but i had cabinets full of filing cabinets full of letters from people and then we set up set self-help self-help groups and I yeah and then a theatre company came along called Spare Tire Theatre Company and they created lots of shows and they went around the country in a sort of um agitprop way and they created self-help groups and I thought well that's it we solved the problem everybody knows <laughs> this is a political <laughs> yeah. issue that is a form of women's oppression that is internalised very deeply, and I can go back to doing other things. But it wasn't to be so. I've always had a little piece of my life that's still involved in this. Well, I was reading a piece you wrote, um, which was, I think, to comment on the 40-year anniversary of Fat as a Feminist Issue, and you said that you'd written the book as a way to kind of solve the problem. What was it, you know, at what point did you realise that it hadn't solved it? I suppose when I wrote Hunger Strike. Yeah. Uh, which was eighty came out in eighty six. I wrote it in eighty four, um, or it doesn't matter. Around that time, I realised that there are a lot of women coming to compulsive eating groups who are actually anorectic, mm -hmm. right? And that seemed even bigger. And then that was the whole. And then you had the beginning of um, sort of that whole new superwoman thing, which came in with Thatcher, and then you had heroin waif chic and yeah. all of that and it all seemed just the same only on a bigger scale and it right. seemed like there were industries running and making so much money from this from distress both in terms of the beauty industry the fashion industry the food industry cosmetic surgery industry mm, yeah the style industries and it just i was just outraged i'm still outraged yeah and one of the things I wrote in that piece about Fifi 40 years on was the fact that it's now such big business mm. that hedge funds have moved into treatment centres. Wow. Eating disorder treatment centres. Mm. 
Well, there was something you wrote in that piece which mm-hmm. I was like so upset by, which was women not getting smear tests. Yeah, one in three because... girls will not go for a smear test because they feel so bad about their bodies. And it's like, at that point, the way we feel about our bodies is actually really, if it's not going to, if it's preventing you from getting help, just medical help for anything, that's at that point it's gone too far. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's well, gone it's too far already. Too far, it's it's a, that thought that was a really shocking statistic that came yeah. up last year. Much, much more shocking than any other statistics. So I'm pleased you picked up yeah. on that. No, it really... Well, I think it, it highlights that it's not a benign issue. I think because body image concerns are so common, I think sometimes they get trivialised. Completely. Yeah. Well, cause I think and yet of... when you think about you've managed to make a whole society feel crazy about their bodies, and increasingly boys too, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you realise there are such malign forces behind this mm. they're making so much money out of disturbing our eating and it gets inside of us and yeah. our mm. experience that it just seems to me it, look the fashion industry is, is is really huge it's not just a polluter of the world it's yeah. not just slavery in uh the east it's mm. it's also slavery in sicily and in yeah. parts of east london and it's also ruining everybody's um, textile uh, industries as we export all of our second-hand clothes. So the yeah. indigenous clothing industries mm. in places like Senegal, like, no, don't send us any more of your clothes, please. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I, I, it, that's just one industry to take on. And I think that is one of the huge industries that yeah. is fueling this. And do you think there's a role for industry... I mean, what's the responsibility for industry? Because I think we're not going to get rid of the fashion industry anytime soon, or beauty, or... Well, I think people like Ellen MacArthur have been really good about talking about sustainable fashion, which, of course, you know, people like me and anybody in endangered bodies have been talking about for 30 years, is that we need sustainable clothes on sustainable bodies. We need to get the plastics out of clothes, and we need to Mm -hmm. stop producing so many clothes. I mean, how... Is it that we spend that much money on clothes? It's just mm. extraordinary. And um, so when industry does stuff, it needs to be doing that kind of thing. We need not to be celebrating, I mean, design in one size. We need to be mm-hmm. celebrating design in lots of sizes and in decent uh materials. And we need not to have women walking out down catwalks. We need to have women doing their jobs. And wearing clothes, yeah, mm-hmm. not looking to camera like they're very blasé and they don't care, and at the same time look at me. I mean, that is not actually not that that creates a sense that we always have to be looking at ourselves critically. But if they mm-hmm. they showed a fashion shoot with you mm-hmm. with the three of us mm-hmm. as we're doing yeah. our work today, yeah. it'd be entirely different because we're concentrating on each other, aren't we? Yeah. So yeah, there's there's a process happening. It's not the object isn't just you. It's, your... it's not just you and how you look. Yeah what you project yeah well it kind of reminds me of um the study of the male gaze and talking about exactly. how we look at ourselves being watched and it's, yeah, it's productive it's, it holds it's us John back Burgess work. exactly yeah. yeah i guess i'm i'm curious to kind of go back to for you kind of going into this work and what's kind of fueling you kind of continuing with it over decades because i think you know mm. honey and i are, are, are newer much newer in, into this work what is it that drives you and what kind of gives you hope that you're kind of talking about, you know, it almost sounds like it's getting worse over the 40 well, years that you've not, been... Not a lot does give me hope, actually. And if I, if I was doing this full-time, 
I, I don't think it'd be sustainable. I mean, really? I, no, not at all. I think I've got theoretical concerns as a psychoanalyst about what's going on with bodies and I can mm. think about things. But I'm a regular psychoanalyst. Mm. I'm a writer. I write about all sorts of things apart yeah. from this. Yeah. I could not be doing this full time because I just want to go out and, I don't know, be very angry. I am very angry. Yeah. yeah. But as we should be, we should be angry. And it is ridiculous that this is a cause you've been fighting for for 40 years. It's absurd. What's your reaction to kind of modern ways of tackling this, like the body positivity movement and things like that? I'm not negative towards it. No. Mm -hmm. I'm not positive towards it. I mean, I'm pleased and interested. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it is a bit too positive because I think after you've got a culture that's telling you that you're bodies are shit all the time Mm. you can't just love your body that's not easier yeah so to me it's much more can you risk can you dare to feel okay about your body can you dare to be involved in your body with a way that's that's very different um i think different images of women is really important yeah and um so I, i feel okay about it i feel it's it's not the solu- It's not a sufficient solution, but I welcome it. it. The sufficient solution to me is to train midwives and health visitors to help new mums who have body problems, oh. mm. not pass them on to their offspring, because there's so much anxiety in the early feeding situation. You're setting up body instability in those babies. Okay, so then you yeah. need so you need proper support to mums, yeah. perinatal, postnatal training. Then you need. Mm. School teachers, there's no point in school teachers teaching nutrition and anti-fat stuff because no. they've all got their own eating problems. They're just passing that on. Yeah. I mean, I could go through the whole... Yeah, I mean, kind of every step of the way the system is working against people to Correct. love themselves. So it starts at the very beginning and then every step of the way. It's very interesting because we were speaking to Natalie Lee, who was um, a midwife, and she said the hardest thing was women coming back in and we didn't have the aftercare. No, they didn't have the free care either. I've written for the government on this with Holly Rubin, and we've written a a paper called Two for the Price of One, which I think was an important paper about the training for midwives. And then we got some funding to do it, but nobody can release the midwives to do it. So So there's no point. I I think it's it's interesting with with mums and and their their babies. I think a lot of mums don't want to, like, they're aware of their anxieties and don't want to pass it on to their kids. And I think that's a, like a complicated yeah. issue. Well, it's we not have... blaming mums. No. It's just that no, it's exactly. impossible for them not to because there's a counter narrative, which is mm. you've got to get back in your genes immediately after you have a baby, but actually you don't have the same body after you've had a baby. You've no. got a post body baby. Yeah, no, but I think that's something on social media that I like to yeah. see because you do have mums and you do see what it looks like because I wouldn't I literally wouldn't know what it it would look like to have a baby from what you see in advertising in, in the media and, and, and whatever but actually yeah, now okay, on social that's media really that kind useful. of and the fact is but where but yes I think it's great that yeah. social media is helpful but I also think it's very sad that people live on social media when mm. when they're it's nicer if mums can meet together and talk to yeah. each other as well yeah I guess it's, it's... I mean, I don't mean to be negative about no, it. No, It is no. important, obviously. But the government messages, anti-obesity messages, just add to the crisis. Because totally. they just add more anxiety in. Yeah, well, I think, I think you've touched on something interesting, which is human connection 
in person is probably more beneficial because as much as we love the bubble we exist in in social media it's a very narrow bubble Mm -hmm. where you know I only see wholesome women with stretch marks who are very happy and comfortable in their own skin which is very much not the case on all of social media we've got a lot of we've got Kardashian exactly and I think that does you know people always tell me how do I people always ask if there's a way to feel better about themselves through social media. And I'm like, well, unfollow everyone who makes you feel like shit and follow only plus-size models and people who make you feel good about themselves. Yeah, I think the best thing to do, I agree with you, is to do that. But also, get off social media for 20 minutes and do some activism. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, activism is the, join together yeah. with some other people, whether it's your group, whether it's Pink Protest or anybody or Endangered mm. Bodies yeah. or anything. Go and do, write to magazines. Yeah. Write to your MP. Do something. Go to your local chemist and say, why are you promoting this rubbish? No, totally. I think people... But I think people are very scared to feel... People are scared to put themselves out there in that way. And I think that's why social media is a really nice tool to bridge that, where people can feel like they're getting involved and helping people. Yeah, and of course they are. They are. And I, I think... From what I've seen, because I think how um, Honey and I use social media is slightly different, and I see people reacting to Honey's feed and, and yeah. how she creates her feed, and it's almost like Honey is, you are a, a role model and people ask you lots of questions, mm-hmm. and Susie, you're saying in response to fact as a feminist issue, you got files full of letters, Honey and I were talking earlier, and Honey gets like hundreds of DMs like yeah. private messages being like well what should I do in this situation how can I feel better yeah. about my body you know you've inspired me to do x y and z um which I think puts a lot on you yeah but also well I guess it does make you aware of how desperate people are for answers and how much people want guidance and want help and want to feel better about themselves how did you react when you received all of those letters I was just overwhelmed I mean mm. I, it, you write a book and you want to you're naive and you think it's going to change the world and then actually what it exposes is it's a much bigger problem than you even thought mm. and you haven't changed very much. I mean, it. I think it did change something temporarily Definitely. because I think my generation was like, no, we're not going to be involved in this shit anymore. However, that didn't stop the attack on other people mm. and because we were a generation that were on the streets and we were demonstrating yeah. and we were doing things... But also, my generation's been under attack phenomenally because why would you still have a body of this? You know, you're why why do you look the way you can when you when, like you do when you can be having your breasts lifted and your face lifted? And what is the matter with you that you look like this? I mean, that's the attack yeah. on women of my generation. Totally. Well, I think also there's it's either you exist in an older body or you're invisible. You know, if that makes sense. It's you know you go past an age and if you're not willing to conform to what's expected you are completely ignored yeah, by but society. that was part of what the issue was in the first place was to yeah. contest those forms of visibility yeah when the feminist movement start like you know second wave feminism started getting very active was it always something you were like right this is me i'm drawn to this i will always no i participate. didn't even understand feminism right in the beginning really? i was probably you know quite male identified without realizing it mm. i was like uh you know i wanted to i i liked women a lot but i didn't really i i didn't even know what the word actually meant i'd gone to a feminist school as a matter of fact one of the first girls school oh. and it was so uptight and blue stocking and i hated it <laughs> So when I had come feminism in my 
late teens and twenties, I was like, well, how, what is a woman's perspective on this? And what is a woman's, I don't, I couldn't, I, it took me a while to get my head around it. So how, what, what brought you in? Well, I suppose it was a continuation of the anti-war movement, uh, civil rights movement in the States. Those yeah. two things mm. were happening. Right. Um, and youth. There was all of a sudden this category of youth. I was living in the States at the time. And uh, women started to talk about, well, wait a minute, this isn't... This isn't uh, we also are being... Um, oppressed or messed over or we're second-class citizens mm. and so it and then as soon as I got involved it was it all made sense no, but right think. yeah and you were talking about human connection before did you find at that time you were talking to a lot of women about their bodies as well as, as writing the uh, book or I, no I didn't write the book no. until much later but um I was talking to women about everything women in history women in film women mm -hmm. in economics women in Art. I, I was in a women's studies program, right. the first one actually that existed in New York City at that point. I'd been working on women in the law so that women would be get a different kind of settlement than when they were divorced. Oh, and, right. and in those days we thought about back pay for labour. Yeah. All right? And the, yeah. Or how do you get a man's, you know, a share of a man's pension because he's the one who's being... Those kinds of things. But no, I mean... And eventually I offered a course on women and body image and it was just overwhelming. And then I, I met my partner and um, he was a scientist at the same university and he said, what, what do you do or whatever, what are you yeah. working on? I told him, he said, oh, you should write that up. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll make a little pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> And the rest is history. Yeah, that's amazing. Because wow. um, I never would have taken it seriously, yeah. right? I would have just had all those thoughts just like I did about everything else. So you weren't aware of the kind of huge change that your work would have as you were writing it? I had a kind of anxiety that I thought it was going to make, going to be useful. That, that's a nice anxiety to have. Because <laughs> I hadn't really written essays since I'd been in, you know, I yeah. wasn't exactly a scholar. I mean, I was... I That's was, so funny to hear you I know, to hear that. you say that, I'm like, what? <laughs> so many, like, best-selling books. Oh, what are you I, I, yes, but... Yeah, but at the time, I wasn't, and I didn't yeah. really like writing. I mean, it, now I write. It's not an yeah. issue. But then I didn't, and it was... Mm -hmm. So I didn't expect... And I did get anxious. I thought, oh, this is... Wait, I think I've gone beyond female experience by writing this. This is too much. <laughs> so I had anxiety, and then... It was this phenomenal success, which was very bizarre and painful because I thought, wait, am I having success now on the backs of oppression? Am I mm. like part of the problem now? I mean, you know, I was in my 20s yeah. and 30s. Your mind just was running through every kind of possible. And I remember my music teacher from when I was a little girl phoned me up and said, Susan, darling, the first of many books. And I thought, what is she talking about? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Feminism, it kind of feels like we're talking about it a, a lot and there's a, a big emphasis on intersectional feminism. And how do you feel that relates to, to bodies? Well, you see, I think the thing is, I was when I was coming of age, I was in a working-class college mm -hmm. on Staten Island in New York City. Mm -hmm. and it, So it was, 
implicitly intersectional. Right. There wasn't anything non-intersectional about it. Of course. So what, where the divides were, were around sexuality, around radical mean? lesbianism, separatism, right. radical feminists, socialist feminists. It right. wasn't really on class and it wasn't really on ethnicity. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So the divides were kind of more created by what group you defined yourself with. Yeah, and the sort of macho-ness of that, of that separation. Okay. Then. So, and also, I think some of the figures in New York at that time were what we would... They were American black feminists. We wouldn't use that terminology yeah. now, but they were. <clears throat> so they were hugely influential. It wasn't... So it wasn't like the intersectionality was quite, it was just implicit, I suppose. And it was, yeah. yes, there are particular things that happen. And when I wrote Fifi, I remember saying, my, the base of people that I'm speaking to is basically white. Mm. And then I got loads of letters from African-American women saying, no, 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 this is, totally applies to me. The fact that we may have an ideology or a, history of thinking a big black woman it does it's still there's something else going on so yeah I mean there were a lot of black feminists in my yeah. day yeah Audrey Lord I mean I I I could just go through a whole list yeah. of them they weren't necessarily on this topic but that didn't matter no it was kind of the right place at the right time I guess because it was very much the start oh. of very active feminism yeah. so, I mean what drew you to America well, I think it was 68, I was stuck in England, and there was a revolution going on there. It was a lot more bloody interesting <laughs> than what's going on here. Yeah. On I mean, the streets that of New makes York. Sense. And I have an American mum, so I had... I so you're like, girl. why not? Why not? Yeah. That's very interesting. So I dropped out, went there, and then <laughs> got back in. What would you say... So I think I'm kind of like, maybe if we kind of bring it back to the present day, yeah. and what, what we do, so... So Honey, obviously, with the Pink Protest, and then I'm a researcher at the Centre for Appearance Research, and I think we, we want to create change so much, and mm. then it's kind of thinking where and how and what's the best direction to, to go in. Yeah, it's really um, tricky. Well, I guess because you so you don't feel particularly optimistic about the way things are going, which is understandable because uh, it's hard to every day. But I don't. Also, we're living in very bad political times. Yeah, it's, we're living um, in darkness. Oh, right it's now. like hell. So, <laughs> so I mean, if you'd asked me, maybe two years ago, I might be feeling differently. But I think the right. last three years are, are are so terrible. What with Trump and um, and Brexit. The politics of Brexit, not Brexit per se, are mm -hmm. so troubling. Mm. And with you know, the level of racism in Britain and and civil breakdown, it's hard to... But of course there's loads of things, all the things that I'm sure you're doing, whether it's working with school kids and making them take action, not just... But try to change the culture, try to be the culture they want to be and try to do it collectively. Mm take on aspects of the fashion industry, don't go and attack the cosmetic surgeons and do things around labiaplasty that link up with FGM. I mean, there's so many different things to do. Uh, I, I mean, I, can't, I, I, I could just go on forever about yeah. It's about kind of that. where to start, really. It doesn't matter where you start. Oh, really. Just start mm. somewhere. 
what we did when we had our summit for endangered bodies seven which is probably eight years ago now is that we everybody came into the summit and they they were given a designation of what they were so they were either a school teacher or they were a working on a magazine mm -hmm. or they worked in an advertising company or they worked in a corporation or they were a social media person. So think about, imagine what you can do. Mm. Would you mind talking to us a bit about endangered bodies and what you do for them and how that came about? Well, it was an, an attempt to say we are very, we're an activist group. We mm -hmm. need, but it, the problem with social media, which I think you probably realise is that people come in and out of it. Mm. So we had protests in Parliament, we had, um, we, we were part of the, um, and the Centre for Appearance Research and us and a mm -hmm. few other groups were part of the parliamentary inquiry into body image. Um, we've had a ditching dieting campaign, we've had um, Shape Your Culture. If you go onto the website mm. for endangered bodies or anybody, you will see. We wanted to say we are endangering bodies. You know, yeah. bodies are disappearing like languages. It's pretty soon the only body you'll be allowed to have is a kind of modifiable white Western body which we're exporting all over the world, which is causing distress and hatred everywhere. Mm. Yeah, and it's how how we kind of rebel against that, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, which I guess is the aim of this podcast. <laughs> you know. That it's a lot to do this you know I think you put yourself in a position where it's quite emotionally draining I imagine a lot of the response you get in terms of you know talking to people helping people what's something that you do for yourself to look after yourself I eat really well <laughs> <laughs> I love that yeah um because obviously there is a lot of talk I think an active revolution against um negative body images you know self-care and looking after yourself and self-love which is obviously separate to body positivity but you know are there things that you practice that are self-love to protect your head and heart from not particularly really no well, I'm not really much of a believer in all that stuff for me I oh mean, that interests me tell me more about that well I just I, I don't know what self-care would be self-care for me is being intellectually stimulated mm. politically engaged and doing my work and you know loving my grandchildren and my friends and you know, my personal life, but it nourishing myself through cultural practices, but you know, I'm not somebody who goes and has a massage every week yeah. or only eats certain kinds of foods, except yeah. I do only eat certain kinds of foods. I don't <laughs> eat food that's food. Um, I won't eat non-food foods. I'm confused by that, but I'm intrigued to know more about what are non-food foods. Well, Process. Processed bliss, bliss ah. point foods. I won't eat any it's of like those. A uh haribo white stuff that we couldn't work out what it was oh yeah we were like what is this made of um <laughs> yeah. that's interesting because i think people do put um i mean i think everything you've described is an act of self-care but people put a label on self-care of it being a massage a week or a face mask and i think i really don't care about that. no yeah. i know which i think is very fair and i think you've been practicing self-care for yourself without the label and didn't need it I'm not part of the wellness industry. No. That's an industry. Yeah, These totally. are all bloody industries. Uh, yeah, and I think that's what I always keep coming back to in, in terms of industries. And is there a way of working with them to make them better? Well, or... look, it's okay to see Boot, new ad with women frolicking yeah. and saying, yeah, we're never going to have beach-ready bodies. But hey, well, our bodies are beach-ready, so, you know, t take it or leave yeah. it. That's great. But it's not enough, is it? Yeah, we yeah. need loads and loads and loads of that happening. 
So I, I feel like it's it's like doing lots of work in different places and it all needs to happen at the same time and kind of like you reach a critical mass. I don't know. Yeah. I just think... We, had, we did have this conversation earlier of, I kind of guess, with brands, it's never enough. As much as we would like it to be, it's almost yeah, impossible. And also, everybody goes cynical about the brands. Yeah, which totally. Is, which is... Yeah, of course, go cynical, but they should still be doing it. I know. Well, because yeah, it's better anyway. Well, we yeah. were saying, because we all exist in a capitalist society, it's like we can't get rid of them, so we either have to get them to a better position Absolutely. or Put just give up. Because yeah. the government isn't going to give you what you want. Well, I think that's, what, again, kind of what we would, we've had conversations about, is like if we can't make change in th- through maybe a conventional avenue, how do you make change in other ways and how can you kind of... Have conversations with brands, people of influence. I think that's fine. I've spent a lot yeah. of my time doing that, but I also yeah. think go to the educators. Yeah, yeah. go to have an education project. I mean, that's you know part of what you need to do is talk to teachers, yeah. talk to reshape the curriculum. I mean, I can I've got a whole curriculum I could do based on body image, which would teach you maths, science, English. Um, Cultural studies, I could do the whole of, of uh, year 13, 14, 15, based on all, all the stats I know. Yeah. I mean, I wish you were running the country, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. No, I mean, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but... How do you think we... You know, you said we can't get the government to change things. How do we get through to them? How do we communicate with them and be like, look, we've got this curriculum? Well, that's one piece to do is, you know, to keep... Sure going to the Department of Health, going to the yeah. Department of Education. It's relentless. Going to early intervention. There's, yeah. there's places to put all these pressure points. And yes, if one of you is organised, we could have an organisation that would have people who go and lobby all these people. Yeah. But we don't have the money for it. And we should have the money for it. Yeah. We need a lot of money to do that. Yeah. So I guess it's kind of about banding together all the people who feel angry about this. And yeah, and, do that. and saying, okay, not to control the people, but to say... Can you work in this area? Can you work in this area? Can you work in this area? Yeah. To create, you know, just like we finally have accepted because of Extinction Rebellion that, that the environment... Yeah, climate change is like a... It's only taken yeah. 60 years to do that. So this is 40 years. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point that we've been saying about kind of bringing communities together because I think there's lots of people working in silos who are like, who really believe in this and mm. and and actually I think there's lots of people who have shared goals and I, it's like working out how to come together and I think that's why I think I really like how Honey and I have come together from like because we have completely different backgrounds right. on so, so many levels. Right, and so you want to be hooked up with endangered at the well, same yeah, time. Well, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah. How and how do we do that? How do we build community? Because I just think when we're all together, we're so much more powerful. And Absolutely. I think sometimes there's yeah. almost and that's the terrible thing about social media it, it, everybody's got specialist interests but actually the great thing about it is you could come all together yeah yeah and i yeah. think that but i think there is a culture of like having your own brand and then you know kind of pushing in one direction but yeah, yeah if we can come together i think as the power coalitions yeah that's really important i mean that's one thing me and scarlet do always say is when people say how do we get involved we go like well don't you know they're like i want to start something it's like you don't have to start something i guarantee the cause you're passionate about yeah. already exists out there there's a platform for it and you just need to turn up, volunteer, get involved. Correct. And I think, yeah, I do think that's such an important message. I think otherwise we're kind of distracted by being like, I'm going to be better by, yeah. by creating change here. What are you doing? And then we're almost yeah. like fighting against... That is the problem ourselves. with social media is I think everybody wants to be the shiny, young, like, um, by the way, I'm 
12 and I've just started a platform against blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, you don't have to be this young entrepreneur. You can be someone who's just passionate, gets involved with the cause and makes change. Yeah, let's come together. I think that's a really good point to end on. Let's come together. Let's come together. Find ways. Susie, thank you so much for speaking to us. I wish I didn't have to, but what a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Body Protest Podcast, brought to you by The Pink Protest. We would love it if you left us a review and some stars, preferably five, on Apple Podcasts. Preferably. (laughs) (laughs) It will help other people find our podcast and join our Body Protest family. Honey, where can we find you on social? Well, I'm on Instagram, (laughs) at Honeykinney, and you should also follow The Pink Protest at Pink Protest. Nadia, where can we find you? I'm at Nadia.Quaddock on Instagram, and you can also listen to my little work podcast, Appearance Matters the Podcast, where Jay Pono and I talk about the body image research with some of the experts in the field. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by the Pink Protest and produced by the wonderful Scarlett Curtis. We love you, Scarlett. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.